Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Brett Etkins of the group Stand Up America, who assesses the Republican Party threat to democracy two years after Donald Trump launched his January 6th insurrection and multi-pronged plot to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Jonathan Friedman of PEN America, who talks about the right-wing groups across the U.S., demanding the banning of books in public schools and libraries, and the censorship of U.S. history, dealing with race, gender, and sexuality. Ann Kay, a longtime Atlanta resident and organizer, who discusses the Stop Cop City campaign that opposes the construction of a $90 million police training facility in one of Atlanta's last remaining forests. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. For some 60 years, India and China have engaged in an intermittent conflict across their common 2,000-mile border in the Himalayas. The latest flare-up occurred in mid-December when a Chinese army patrol clashed with Indian troops in the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh near Tibet. The incident injured six Indian soldiers on land that China claims as its territory. In 2020, a clash between Chinese and Indian forces in northern Ladakh, an area near Kashmir, led to 24 deaths. After the brief conflict, India sent in 50,000 troops to reinforce its positions on the frontier. Two years later, the recent establishment of buffer zones in the Himalayan region of Ladakh has been hailed as a significant step toward containing tensions between the two nuclear-armed neighbors. But precious pastures in this buffer zone have become off-limits to the semi-nomadic Tibetan Changas people. Known for producing pashmina cashmere wool, the soft gold once favored by India's royalty and Napoleon's wife, Empress Josephine. Mexico's populist president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, or AMLO, has long been at odds with Mexico's election commission, a cornerstone of democratic reforms in the country. Tensions go back to 2006 when AMLO, a former mayor of Mexico City, narrowly lost the presidential election by less than 1% of the vote to center-right candidate Felipe Calderón, election results that AMLO claimed were rigged. The Economist reports that last fall, AMLO's plan to diminish the powers of the Election Commission fueled mass opposition to proposed cuts in the Commission's staff and budget. After failing to get a supermajority for his reforms in the lower chamber of the legislature, AMLO and his ruling Morena party approved weaker reforms in the upper house in mid-December. While the Senate approved 450 changes to the current election law, Opposition legislators plan to appeal their objection to Mexico's Supreme Court, claiming the changes violate the Constitution. Despite AMLO's popularity, polls show that most Mexicans trust the Election Commission more than any government institution except for the armed forces. AMLO has stepped back from abolishing the commission or having its key officials popularly elected. 
Still, the Commission will have fewer funds to monitor elections and issue voter credentials to 97 million Mexicans. Political analyst Carlos Bravo Regidor worries cuts in the Election Commission will give political parties more leeway to engage in illegal and corrupt behavior. Violent storms are common in California's desolate Sonoran Desert, south of Palm Springs, that stretches to the Mexican border. The American Prospect reports that dust from Imperial County's dry lake bed is polluted with agricultural chemicals and blows into nearby towns, contributing to pediatric asthma hospitalizations in the region at a rate twice the state average, a crisis for the disproportionately poor residents. With backing from California Governor Gavin Newsom, locals now hope to exploit the growing demand for electric vehicles by developing lithium deposits under that dry lake bed. These are among the world's largest lithium deposits, a primary component in electric vehicle and energy storage batteries that are critical to the green transition. While extracting this mineral is typically a dirty business, companies in the Salton Sea are pioneering a cleaner process integrated with geothermal operations that have thrived in the region for 40 years. Luis Almedo, executive director of the region's Valley Civic Committee, a health and environmental justice organization, maintains that development of the lucrative lithium deposits must strike a balance between maximizing economic opportunity for his impoverished community and at the same time protecting the environment and public health. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. It's been two years since Donald Trump and the Republican Party launched their deadly January 6th insurrection and multi-pronged plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Although the House Select Committee investigating the plot that led to January 6th conducted 10 revealing public hearings and issued an exhaustive 845-page final report, none of the architects of that attack have been held accountable for one of the most heinous crimes against U.S. democracy and the Constitution in our nation's history. It was a sad irony that on January 6, 2023, Republicans who are about to take control of the House were attacking each other, forced to vote 15 times to elect their Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who himself was one of the 147 GOP members of Congress voting to overturn the 2020 election. Just days after the January 6th anniversary, Brazil experienced a terrifying echo of the U.S. Capitol insurrection when supporters of former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, who refused to accept his October 2nd election defeat, attacked and vandalized the nation's Congress, Supreme Court, and Presidential Palace buildings. Your reporter spoke with Brett Edkins, Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America who assesses the lack of accountability for Trump and his January 6 co-conspirators, the Republicans' control of the House, and the GOP's ongoing threat to democracy. In America, no one is above the law. 
And right now it is uh, incredibly important that the Department of Justice and our courts, our state courts, our state prosecutors as well, hold Trump and his co-conspirators accountable. It's been two years and it's been too long. Um, After thousands of hours of investigation, more than a thousand interviews, over 140,000 collected documents, including secret memos and messages sent by President Trump's inner circle. As you mentioned, the January 6th committee proved pretty definitively that President Trump and his allies planned, promoted, and paid for a criminal conspiracy to overturn the will of the voters in 2020. The committee also proved that Donald Trump knew he lost the presidency and that his actions were illegal. The committee made a number of criminal referrals, which are a necessary next step to hold President Trump and those responsible for the attack on our country accountable uh, and show that no one is above the law in America. And a number of referrals were also made to House committees, um, and those should be followed through. Unfortunately, now with the Republicans in control of Congress, it's unlikely and that it's very likely they will try to do everything in their power to evade accountability. But I think most Americans agree uh, that in our country, no one is supposed to be above the law. So we're looking forward to the next few steps from DOJ, from the special counsel. As you might have heard, you know, the grand jury down in Georgia finished their investigation. Uh, so there's a number of legal things moving uh, where we might see some hope to reaffirm that fundamental belief that no one is above the law in our country. You know, it's been said many times that unless Trump and his co-conspirators face consequences for their failed coup attempt, the next attack on democracy is just around the corner. And I'd like to touch on what happened in Brazil recently, because I think it, it really fits into this idea that there are consequences for inaction. But what are the consequences in your mind for this country if Trump, Rudy Giuliani, Mark Meadows, uh, and a whole bunch of Congress people that were involved in this coup plot walk scot-free? What are the consequences for our country? Well, I think we're starting to see some of the consequences now. The House majority has, unfortunately, been taken over by MAGA extremists who believe that they're impervious, who believe that they are above the law. Uh, And their priority right now is getting back at anyone who tried to hold them accountable for January 6th and rewarding their wealthy campaign donors. As we saw last week, they can't govern. uh, And the American people are the ones who are going to suffer. It's going to be a very difficult two years. In the new Congress right now, there are over 70 percent of the U.S. House Republicans are election deniers. That's 135 incumbents who voted against certifying Joe Biden's Electoral College victory in 2020, and they're back. They're returning to the House. And at least 27 freshman Republican members who are election deniers as well. Every single member of the new House GOP leadership is an election denier, including Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who voted against certifying the 2020 election and repeatedly obstructed the investigation into January 6th. The House GOP has unfortunately become the party of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gatz, George Santos, this extreme, extreme, extreme wing of the right wing. It should really come as no surprise that these political arsonists are already burning down the House. And I think it's just more and more important that groups like Stand Up America and its members Stand up uh, for our democracy. We are built to resist this MAGA House majority, to protect our freedoms and our democracy. From our earliest days at Stand Up America, we have taken on MAGA extremism and won, and we're going to do it again. Brett, I did want to touch on what occurred in Brazil. It seems that many of those associated with Donald Trump 
people like Steve Bannon and Jason Miller. There are several others who've been in close contact with Jair Bolsonaro and his uh, family members, both before Brazil's election and after his loss. Uh, the violent attacks in Brasilia by the pro-Bolsonaro rioters are a direct assault on democracy. It's a reminder of the dangers that demagogues pose to democracy worldwide, demagogues who so distrust in fair and free elections, even after they've left office and a new government has been sworn in. I think, as you said, the echoes of January 6th are very clear, uh, and the dangers in Brazil are particularly acute. Democracy is only 38 years old in Brazil. It's a far less established democracy than ours. And American actors uh, on the far right are giving Jair Bolsonaro and his uh, supporters cover. Trump gave Bolsonaro his, quote, complete and total endorsement for re-election. Uh, he called him a great president uh, who would never let his people down. Bolsonaro's son, Eduardo Bolsonaro, even visited Trump at Mar-a-Lago uh, late last year, making the pilgrimage that Kevin McCarthy and others have made. President Trump's allies, including Steve Bannon, uh, cast doubt on the legitimacy of Brazil's election results. Bannon promoted the hashtag Brazilian Spring, which has since been adopted by the right-wing demonstrators in Brazil to spread false claims of electoral fraud. Uh, and Steve Bannon's already called the rioters in Brasilia freedom fighters. Uh, Bannon and his fellow Trump advisor, Jason Miller, uh, advised Bolsonaro after he lost re-election. And unsurprisingly, Bolsonaro has never publicly conceded, uh, though he allowed the transfer of power to proceed. That is all right out of the Trump playbook. And now, uh, just like Donald Trump, Bolsonaro is holed up in Florida, trying to evade accountability and his people. That was Brett Etkins, Managing Director of Policy and Political Affairs with the group Stand Up America. Find more analysis and commentary on the current threats to U.S. democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Over the last several years, right-wing groups across the U.S., have descended on school boards, city council meetings, and political forums to demand the banning of books in public schools and libraries and the censorship of school curricula. The targets of this repressive campaign are books mostly dealing with the issues of race, gender, and sexuality, focused mainly on LGBTQ themes. When it comes to the teaching of U.S. history, many of these same groups demand the censorship of curricula dealing with America's slave-era past, Jim Crow discriminatory laws, contemporary structural racism, and inequality. The group PEN America's recent report, titled Banned in the USA, The Growing Movement to Censor Books in Schools, documents the more than 1,600 book titles across 32 states that have been banned from public schools during the 2021-22 school year. At least 17 states have introduced bills containing gag orders or taken other steps that would restrict how teachers can discuss American history and current events. Your reporter spoke with Jonathan Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education with PEN America. Here he examines the movement working to impose book bans and censorship across the nation and PEN America's work opposing this repressive campaign while upholding the shared value of free speech and the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. 
Well, since 2021, I've been tracking what I call the rise of educational censorship. And we have to distinguish that from the ways in which we talk about, you know, free speech in society generally, in the arts, even on college campuses. When I talk about educational censorship, I'm talking really about formal acts of government, of state agents, of uh, legislatures, of uh, city councils, of school boards, uh, even in some cases of superintendents or principals. And it's that that is spreading everywhere. It started a few years ago with proposals, these new laws uh, that had come uh, influenced by Donald Trump and influenced by uh, a backlash toward the 1619 project from the New York Times. And it just kind of grew and has become incredibly fluid. You have laws that are being proposed to censor K-12 schools, teachers, libraries, and then also higher education, college classrooms. And, you know, while that, you know, in one stream has been spreading from state to state, uh, some proposals becoming laws, others not, but nonetheless feeding a kind of mania around this idea in, you know, red states and blue alike, uh, we also saw the rise of book bans. And this is an unprecedented moment. Never in the history of the United States have there been so many groups organizing. And, and this is what we mean when we talk about a movement, groups organizing on the ground, collaborating using social media, or in some cases, influencing also government officials to support the censorship of books. Uh, and it's a movement that started in 2021, uh, has just gained more and more energy. And as we head into another legislative season and in the middle of another school year, book banning you know, continues to gain steam. Well, Jonathan, I think it's true to say that these groups across the country that are moving sometimes successfully to ban books and censor uh, school curricula, they've gotten a fair amount of publicity in our corporate media. What's not getting a lot of publicity, and I'd like you to fill us in on, are the organizations and grassroots clubs and parents groups that are pushing back, that are saying, no, we don't want censorship in our schools for our children. What is happening in terms of a pushback? If we only watch the media, it seems that these parents groups that want censorship are going into these school board meetings unopposed. Well, I think it's very important that we remember that what these groups have done is galvanize citizens and that that is the kind of democratic way of responding to this and what's necessary now. There are a ton of stories of students coming to school boards, of parents organizing around school board elections. There are national organizations like PEN America uh, and other organizations that we work with in the anti-censorship or other parents groups that we're working with around the country. And I do think there is a certain amount of momentum behind our efforts. In February, we're going to be uh, partnering with Brooklyn Public Library to offer a series of workshops for teenagers around the country to learn how to fight book bans, to learn about their rights and how to organize to stand up to book banning in their communities. And that's an online free uh, virtual program. Uh, and there's a lot of new efforts like that that are underway to connect efforts on the ground because there has been some success. And, and when people get together and raise their voice, that's where we see success. The first year and a half of book bans, in a lot of places, this, this happened in the shadows, you know, where school administrators were under pressure from one very loud contingent, even if it was a minority, to remove books. And they kind of caved into it, you know, in district after district. But I do believe that you know, shining a light on what's been happening and encouraging people to form a kind of counter movement against this has had some success. And I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, unfortunately, as we see more repressive proposals on the table, we might 
you know, come to see uh, stronger uh, resolve to, you know, stand up against them. That was Jonathan Friedman, Director of Free Expression and Education with PEN America. Learn more about groups fighting the Republican Party's book banning and censorship campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. A plan by the Atlanta Police Foundation to build what they call a public safety training center in the city's South River Forest was announced in March 2021. A resistance campaign immediately sprang up under the banner of Stop Cop City. Opponents include groups and individuals promoting environmental protection, racial justice, police and prison abolition, indigenous rights, and the preservation of urban green space. Local residents and activists from other cities have joined together in the struggle. The area adjacent to the $90 million project is a lower-income neighborhood whose residents are largely people of color. Tactics include demonstrations, tree sits, and protests targeting the construction contractors and CEOs building the project. Protesters arrested have been charged with misdemeanors such as trespassing and, in mid-December, Six activists were charged with domestic terrorism. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Kay, a longtime Atlanta resident and protest organizer who didn't want to use her full name for fear of violent retribution from right-wing supporters of the police project. Here she talks about the fight to stop construction of the training center, save the forest, and the terrorism charges brought against forest defender activists. I would say what unites everyone in the movement is the understanding that environmental justice is racial justice and racist policing and racist environmental policy are kind of two sides of the same coin. We've heard the police and the Atlanta Police Foundation several times state that the point of Cop City is to boost police morale that this is essentially a gift that the Atlanta Police Foundation which is a so-called nonprofit that is funded by the largest corporations in Metro Atlanta is giving to the police department to basically hurt the cops' bruised egos, not protecting the people of Atlanta. In fact, quite the opposite. We know that Cop City not only is supposed to be the largest police training facility in the U.S., but we call it Cop City because the plans for it include a fake city that they will construct inside the forest after destroying the trees. And the fake city will have a barbershop, it will have a grocery store, it will probably have schools where they will practice putting down urban protests. And this is a clear response to the Black Lives Matter movement, the George Floyd Rebellion of 2020. And this is the kind of facility we're talking about. I think that's really important to note because I think some people hear and they say, well, don't the police need to be trained because they are violent and they're killing unarmed Black people every day in this country? We say, no, this is not what the police need. This is what they need for their bruised egos. And this is what they need to train to be able to better put down protests when people are protesting the brutality of the police. But this is how they'll train to better brutalize us. Apparently, there's been some sabotage 
which some people would say include in the category of nonviolence, and others would say, no, that's not nonviolent, and that could alienate some people who might otherwise support it. Can you comment on that? And I don't know how widespread that is either. I think some machinery has been damaged or destroyed. At this point, I can't keep track of all of the different tactics uh, that people have used kind of acting on their own authority in solidarity with the movement, because there's just been so many solidarity acts, whether that's, you know, folks have done banner drops or protester rallies in other cities. There are folks who have been able to identify the contractors that are actually set to do the destruction of the forest itself. And so, like we've seen in movements for many decades, um, all throughout this country, and certainly internationally, folks who decide for themselves what tactics they feel comfortable with. And there's really no kind of centralized organization that says, this is how we protest, this is not how we protest, right? So in, around mid-December, uh, there was a police raid. If you could describe maybe what happened, but I know the upshot was that six people were arrested and charged with domestic terrorism, which is a very heavy charge. So can you just talk about what happened there and where those people are now and what's happening in their defense? Yes, in mid-December, over the course of two days, several police agencies, including federal police agencies, cooperated to raid the forest and violently attack people who are in the forest. And now keep in mind that a massive section of this forest is public parkland. And so when the police went in and raided, again, this was Department of Homeland Security, it was the FBI, the GBI, Atlanta Police Department. When they came in and raided, they utilized several tactics, one of which was detaining anyone who was in the forest, including on the public side of the land. They detained at least one journalist that we know of. They detained residents who were simply going on walks through the forest and harassed them and kicked them out. And they also used chemical weapons on um, people who were sitting in trees. So they fired, for instance, pepper spray balls and so-called non-lethal or less than lethal weapons at the tree sitters, which might be less than lethal we could debate that, but it's certainly not less than lethal when you're firing it at somebody who is in a tree and could very easily fall out of that tree to their death. And in that same day, as they were raiding over those two days, they did arrest six people and they charged them with some like very standard kind of misdemeanor charges. But then they did something quite strange, which is they tacked on this domestic terrorism charge. They've been bailed out and... Um, there's a group called the Atlanta Solidarity Fund that supports protesters whenever they're facing any kind of state repression. And at this point, they all have lawyers. That was Kay, an organizer with Stop Cop City and Defend the Atlanta Forest Campaign. Learn more about the Stop Cop City campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website 
at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WPPM in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, KRFY in Sandpoint, Idaho, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.